Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. It's great to be together. It's great to worship the Lord together. Um, I just wanted to introduce Lucy to you um, for a couple of reasons. Um, We know that God is really doing something amongst us at the moment. Um, Most of you know that as um, God adds to us here in Largan, we really want to give that away to the nation in terms of planting churches, raising up leaders, seeing the kingdom come. And we really do believe the Spirit is stirring a fresh wave of what he wants to do in the nation. And I suppose like we as a church really want to say that very central to that, you know, as well as seeing churches planted and leaders raised, is in this next wave, I think, the release and empowerment of women throughout this nation in ways that they haven't been in the past. And um, and so I know that might, might uh, jar with some of us from some of the backgrounds and places that we've come from. And so I want to ask you to keep your hearts open and soft to the way the Spirit maybe wants to lead and to speak to us to, tonight. And, um, and uh, we have spent some time as elders, actually just the last week, um, discussing this issue, getting our Bibles out, getting around it and stuff like that, having some input. Um, so that we can speak with clarity and with a strong, articulate voice of why we believe this, why we believe the Bible um, has a, a thrust to it that liberates everyone that is oppressed, and, uh, and specifically for the context tonight um, in the area of women to lead and to preach and to teach and to do all that God has called them to do, and that leadership is not based on gender, but on the anointing of God, right? And so we couldn't think of anybody better to speak into that than Lucy Peppiot, who's with us tonight. Lucy's the principal of WTC, which is Westminster Theological College. Um, We also have uh, deepening links with Lucy in that college because we want to see those who are being raised up to have the best kind of input. And so our friends in Lagan Valley Vineyard, I think Stuart's here tonight, have a hub there. We're encouraging some of our leaders coming up through if they'd like to go a little bit further and push in a little bit more academically to go to WTC. And uh, and we really feel like there's a growing kind of one-mindedness about what the Lord's doing. So for all those reasons, it's really, really great to have Lucy with us tonight. She's going to be speaking for the next few hours. So I want you to give a really good Lurgan round of applause and welcome to Lucy Pepe. <laughs> Lucy, I should say Lucy's written a couple of books. Um, one just coming out later on this year. Um, but the one that uh, we have all read as elders and encourage you to read as well is uh, The Unveiling Paul's Women. There's a few copies at the back. It tackles the kind of mysterious, kind of slightly tricky passage of 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, Lucy uh, offers a really, really compelling argument. I really like it. And I'd recommend it. And they're 10 pounds at the back. There's only a limited amount. So uh, you can fight each other to get them. All right, let's pray for Lucy before she speaks. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here with us tonight. Lord, we thank you for for Lucy. Lord, we thank you for, Lord, her heart, her desire for you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, just for the gift that she is to the body of Christ, oh God, in this nation and all around the world, oh God. And God, we want to pray, Lord, tonight. We receive her, Lord, into our hearts and into our home here. 
um, to bring us your word, O oh God. We pray that you would give her grace, O oh God, and you would give her help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bless you, Lucy. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Good evening. It's, um, it's great to be here. I remember really well uh, when my colleague and I came over here and had a long cup of tea with Phil and um, heard his story and just thought, wow, what an amazing place, what an amazing man. And we prayed from that time on that God would give us an opening for us to come and have a center here in Northern Ireland um, of our college. And, uh, and God opened that door. And so we, are, we now have part of our college family is in Northern Ireland. And that's just a delight for us because every hub that we add to our college adds students from a particular region and a place that then comes into our student body and changes the shape of us. And so now we have Northern Irish students, and that changes everything. It changes the conversation. It changes how we understand what we're doing. It changes the theological conversation to have people from different places. And for me, that's really significant. So who you are and, and your history and your place is being brought into our theological learning and study. That's exciting. So please consider joining in with what we're doing because we're doing this also for you guys. Part of what God has called me to do is to facilitate and bring theological education and training, which is really just the knowledge of God and the Christian faith back into the church in a deeper way. And so we work with pastors and we work with church leaders and we team up and say, how can we help you? You know, you're doing everything you can for your people, teaching them and pastoring them, but we can add to that. How can we help you? And so when people open their doors and say, come and be a hub here, then we start to work together and it's just really exciting. So we're on your doorstep and we're here for you. If God's calling you to go deeper into your faith, deeper into the scriptures, just to learn more of your heritage, of who you are as a Christian, with your scriptures and your doctrine and your church history, then come and join us because we'd love to have you. <laughs> and it's not that hard. It's not easy but it's not that hard. You know, people exclude themselves from academic theology because they think that that's just for clever people and for nerds and for people, who, you know, who are not like me. But we give a lot of help. And you don't realize how much help the Spirit gives you when your chosen subject is God. Yeah? It's not like going to university and slogging through a subject that you've never really engaged with and you're thinking, oh gosh, I, you know, why did I do this? It's not like that. It's completely different. So that's what I do uh, for my job. It's such a privilege. But today, um, Alan's asked me and Phil asked me to speak a bit about women in the Bible, which is something that I love to speak about. And <clears throat> there are just a few things that I want to bring to you. And I thought that we would start 
um, just by looking at one of my favorite women in the Bible, and it is Mothering Sunday. So I thought that we should just look again at the mother of Jesus, Mary, who was an amazing woman. She's one of my heroes. I absolutely love her. And she speaks, she still speaks into our lives as a figure at the heart of the gospel. So I just want to start by looking at her, and then we're going to change tack a little bit, and I'm going to use the whiteboard. I got, oh my gosh, it's so white, your whiteboard. You do look after this. I've been told to take care of this. It's a very special possession. Um, <coughs> I feel privileged. But let's start with a story about a special woman. In John 2, it says this, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The first thing that happens, when, when they run out of wine, which was a terrible thing to happen at a Jewish wedding. They shouldn't have run out of wine. They should have budgeted and realized, because these weddings go on for days, and they really needed to have enough wine for their guests. So Mary, classic, the mum, notices, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about it? This is embarrassing. And goes to the one person that she knows is going to do something about it. Now, as far as we know, Jesus hasn't actually done any miracles yet. But this is his mum. This is the person who was visited by an angel and was told, you're going to carry the son of the Most High. And she knew from day one that this child that she bore within her womb had been an extraordinary gift of God. Who knows what went through Mary's head and heart as the, the, the most extraordinary thing that had ever happened in the history of the world happened in her womb. What a bizarre thing for God to do, to choose a young woman and to say, okay, so I'm going to plant in you a baby who's going to be a God-man and who's going to save the human race. And she goes, okay. <laughs> but she didn't just say, okay. In fact, when God said that to her, she had a rush of prophetic insight. She had a moment where she thought, the whole world is about to change, and it's about to change through me. And she cries out and sings out to God. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Who am I 
just a young girl in first century Palestine with no honor, no status, nothing to recommend me. Girls didn't have much of a status either in the Roman world or the Jewish world. So she was a nobody. She wasn't special, but now she was. She was the most special girl that had ever lived because she'd been chosen to carry the Savior. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Well, that's happened, hasn't it? She knew that. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Isn't that great? Isn't it lovely when you see someone who's just been at the bottom of the pile and they suddenly realize how special they are? Because the Lord has done great things for me. I believe that God wants every woman, every man, every child, but everyone who thinks they're at the bottom of the pile to be able to stand up straight with their heads held high and say, God's done great things for me because he loves me. That's a good thing to be able to say. And she knew that. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones. This is someone who has felt oppression, isn't it? She's excited because justice is coming. And lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich empty away. <laughs> when God comes to earth, justice comes through him. That's his big vision. And she could see ahead and she was like, this is going to happen. When Jesus touches our hearts, something happens in the world where all the world's values, where the people who've got to the top for whatever reason they've got to the top, are suddenly it's all flipped around. And Jesus says, you know, you guys right at the bottom, you're just going to be lifted up way up to the top. And you guys at the top, you've had enough time at the top. You can come down here for a bit. And all you rich people, you know, give it away. Give your money away. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he has made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is Mary, the prophet Mary is in the prophetic tradition, and that's what happens when you see she, that's why she's chosen. The prophets are all chosen to herald the coming of God. And up until that time, there's been men and women prophets through Israel's tradition, and then Mary and John the Baptist are the two most important people right now. 
And so John the Baptist is chosen to preach the repentance that is going to prepare the way for Jesus. And he prepares the way for his cousin. And then his cousin comes on the scene and God takes him out, literally. Kind of dramatic. And Mary is the woman who's chosen to bear the Savior. And she bears him. And she births him. And she breastfeeds him. And she changes his nappies. And she sings to him. And she teaches him the faith. Because she's his mum. She's a Jewish mother. And so she taught him the stories of the faith. And I wonder what they talked about when he was a little boy. We don't know. We've got one story of Jesus when he was 12. And I never really understood how Joseph and Mary had left him and didn't realize for a whole day until we lived in Zimbabwe. And then I understood how families just take each other's kids. And, I, and we were going on a, on a church trip, and I couldn't find one of my children. And I just thought, well, I hope someone's got him. So we all left, <laughs> and they did have him. <laughs> so it's fine, but I just thought, oh, yeah, that's how it works. So they just thought, oh, well, he's with his cousins. But he wasn't. He was in the temple asking amazing questions. And when Mary and Joseph finally got back to Jerusalem to find him, they're like, what are you doing? And he said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And Mary must have gone, oh, yeah. I've known that all along. So this was the boy that she bore, and she knew he was the Savior. She knew he was the Messiah. But she must have wondered, I wonder where all this is going. But she knew that he was the one who had all the resources and he was the problem solver. And so when there's a problem at this wedding, and it's so practical, isn't it? It's just so earthy and it's so normal. They've run out of wine, so she just goes to her son, they've got no wine. And he gives her some kind of pompous answer. He says, what has that got to do with you and with me, woman. My hour has not yet come. So he gives her some deep theological answer about, it's not time for me to be revealed as the Messiah. So I can't. So they have a code. Because he's like mums and kids. You know what your mum means when she says that thing. And she comes in, they have no wine. And he's like, don't ask me to do a miracle. Because... I don't want them to know I'm the Messiah yet. And this is one of my favorite bits in the Bible because she totally ignores him. And she just says, to, she just turns to the servants and she goes, do what he tells you. She's like, just do it, son. And what does he do? He does what his mum tells him. <laughs> In this story, Mary is the instigator of the miracle. Mary's behind it. It's her idea. She's the one who gives him a boot to say, 
She doesn't even listen to him when he's like, it's not my hour. Just do it. Because she's the prophet. She has an unbelievably important role in the story of our salvation. She's an amazing woman, and she is there to be honored. She says a yes to God that changes the whole of history. She's a pattern for all women and all men. You know what I see a lot? In, because in the Bible, it's very easy to follow the stories of the men, isn't it? Because they're more prominent than the stories of the women. That's partly true. But it's also partly true that the stories of the men are told more than the stories of the women. And in the history of the church, I know that's true. Because a lot of the preachers have been men. A lot of the people who translated the Bible have been men. A lot of the people who write about the Bible have been men. And I'm not blaming them, but they relate to the men. And do you know what the women do? Do you know what we do? We relate to the men. We had an amazing exercise in my college where I had a female colleague, a lecturer, and she, she was doing a, a thing in our, in our worship time, and she said, I want you just to think of a character in the Bible and come up and, and say who you are. There were about half men and half women lined up all in front of us. And loads of the women, she said, oh, and who are you? Oh, I'm David. I'm Gideon. We read the stories and we're like, that could be me. But I bet you the men don't often read the stories of the women and think, oh, that could be me. <laughs> There's a bit of an imbalance but a lot of that imbalance is just the way we tell the stories and what we expect to come out of what our telling of the stories does. So I wanted to start with Mary because I love her and because it's Mothering Sunday and because when we're trying to work through what is God saying to women and to men through the scriptures, there's so many different ways that we can go in to this question. So many different approaches. So let me just show you one of the ways. What color shall I use? Green. I'm going to try and draw a circle. <laughs> I'm not very good at drawing circles. Oh, I need to take these off. A lot of us want to know what does the Bible say about women, don't we? It's a question. What is the big picture of what the Bible says about women? And we ask that question. And then, because we love the Bible, 
and we trust it and we think that it's the word of God and so we think there's going to be truth in here that will tell us how to think, don't we? Yep. And so then we often go to some of the passages that we know talk about women, yeah? And maybe we go to the passages that we think give us some instructions. And so there aren't actually that many in the New Testament. But we might try and go in. Well, so the Old Testament, we could pick Genesis 1 and 2, couldn't we? Then we might just fast forward and we might go in at 1 Corinthians 11 and probably 14. And then we might include Ephesians 5. You can look all of these up. Colossians 3. 1 Peter 3. These have what is called the household codes. The place of men and women in a household. That's the creation stories. 1 and 2 in Genesis. This is, includes a passage I've worked on for seven years. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11. And 14. And then you might include 1 Timothy 2. Who knows about 1 Timothy 2? Just put your hands up. 1 Timothy 2, we'll read it together, is a passage about, um, it's about directly about women. You might include 1 Timothy 3 and 5. And that's pretty much it. And then, what you could do is you could go in here and you could add all the women in the Bible. And that could answer loads of your questions. But what I find is that despite looking at this and spelling it all out and looking at what God has done with all the women in the Bible throughout history, people get stuck on one of these. And then they go in here and then they use that to go back to here. And then they say, oh, well, it must mean that. If that means this, then that must mean that. And then they go around this circle, reading everything and totally ignoring this big bit in the middle. That's called a method. <laughs> and it's not a very good one. So, but you know, I, I teach on women in the Bible quite a lot. And if I had my choice, 
I would just teach on this big bit in the middle because I think it says it all. But I do understand that when I teach on this big bit in the middle, everyone goes, but what about 1 Corinthians 11? Or what about 1 Timothy 2? And so tonight, because we haven't got time to do all of these, and because I've written a book where I look at all of these, and it's going to be out in August, so that's not very long to wait. We're going to look at one of them, and I'm going to give you an example of how we can, we can even just pick one and go in there and have a way, way better picture for women. Should we do that? Okay, so you need to have the text in front of you, if you can. You can get it on your phones. So... I'll tell you why this text is supposed to be difficult for women. Because there are two verses in it which say this. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She's to keep silent. That doesn't sound very good, does it? <laughs> I'd be out of a job. Um, and so a lot of people read that and they go, well, that's clear, isn't it? Is it? Well, let's have a look and see how clear it is. So if we're trying to work out what something in the Bible means, it's really important to put it in its surrounding verses and then in its whole book and then in its whole history. It's not a good thing to take one verse out, to pluck it out and say, well, we definitely understand what it means in total isolation. So let's just go back and see what Paul is saying. This is a letter of Paul writing to his, uh, one of his spiritual sons, Timothy, who he's advising how to lead the church in Ephesus. And so this is some of his advice. He's telling him what to do. And let's start in verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. That sounds okay, doesn't it? I think we kind of get that. Subtext is, the men were angry and argumentative. Yep. So, there were a few men behaving badly in this church. And... Paul was saying, so make sure that they behave well and that they pray well 
and that they stop being angry and arguing. Okay, we're fine with that. Also, that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided. Do you have braided in your Bibles? Okay, do any of you not? Right. It's an important word. Or, and it's what the Greek says is a braid. Or with gold, pearls, or, expen or expensive clothes. What does that sound like to you? What does it sound like Paul's saying about the women? Someone just shout out. N not, not flashy. Right. What else? No bling. <laughs> Don't be ostentatious. Be modest. So we kind of think we understand that, don't we? You, do you think you understand that? Do you think that's kind of... Does that strike you as fair enough? No? Okay. So you don't even like that reading of it. No, I'm not sure I do. Anyway. But we can kind of inhabit that a bit. Maybe. But with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Then we have our two verses. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I do not permit, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Is it true that Paul didn't permit any women to teach? How do you know that's not true? Which bit in Oh yeah, so we have a we have a prophecy that tells us that women prophesy, but do we have any concrete examples of the fact that that Paul let women teach? Yes, there was. So there was Priscilla and Aquila who taught Apollos in the faith. Priscilla was a teacher. Who else? Phoebe taught the book of Romans to the Romans. Hmm? Sorry? Chloe led a church. Nympha led a church. Junior was an apostle. Lydia led a church. There's a huge list of women who Paul works with. He calls them his co-workers, and he appoints them to lead churches and to teach. I'm not going to go into all of that now. But the fact that we can find really a huge amount of evidence in Paul's letters to his friends, his sisters, he calls them, and his co-workers, who supported him. Some of them supported him in his ministry. Uh, they worked with him. They taught people. They evangelized. They were missionaries. They were apostles. They did everything with him. It means that when we get to this passage, this verse about 
I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. It's just not true in a universal sense. So is this universally, like everywhere for all time, applicable? And the answer has to be no, because the evidence of all the women in the Bible tells us that we can't apply it in that way. A lot of the way we decide of how we're going to interpret Scripture is by deciding what we know we can't say. And now we know we can't say that. So we've got to look for some other options. Let's just quickly, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Everyone okay with that? We're all good with that. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Everyone okay with that? Everyone okay with that? What? Yes? No. How many yeses? How many noes? You could have a little bit of courage with that. Is everyone okay with that? No. You shouldn't be okay with that. You don't want to say you're not okay with that because it's in the Bible. Isn't that right? Of course. But you're not okay with it because it's strange. And there's other bits in the Bible that tell you it's strange. Do you know what Paul says about Adam in Romans 5? He says that in Adam, all have sinned. Adam is the archetypal sinner. So what's Paul saying when he's saying Adam wasn't deceived, but it was Eve that became the transgressor? He's he must mean something, but we're not quite sure what. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. Everyone okay with that? <laughs> Why aren't we okay with that? Who saves us? Jesus. We know no woman is saved by having a baby, don't we? Please, we know that. Right, good. We know that. So, we have loads of problems with this passage, and now we've got to try and sort it out. Because we believe that this is the Word of God, don't we? So, God's trying to communicate something to us through this. Paul was certainly trying to communicate something to Timothy through this. So, what do you think he was saying? Shall I tell you what I think? Paul was writing to Timothy, who was about to go to Ephesus. Yeah, is that better? Oh, good. Black one, black one. Yeah. Okay. We're in Ephesus in the first century. In Ephesus in the first century, there was a massive pagan cult. 
of a goddess called Artemis. And a lot of people went to the cult and worshipped there and worshipped the goddess Artemis. Artemis was kind of an interesting woman because Artemis was the daughter of Zeus and Leto. And Leto had twins. And she had Artemis first. And then nine days later, she was in labor for nine days before she had her son, Apollo. This is all not true, by the way. <laughs> Just so you know. It's all, yeah. Artemis watched her mum, Leto, in labor for nine days and finally gave birth to her brother, Apollo. And as she watched, she was an adult, obviously, as soon as she was born. And as she watched her mother in laboring in pain for nine days, she swore that she would never have a baby. So Artemis was a perpetual virgin, and she said she was never going to have a baby. But it was her job to look after the women when they were in childbirth because she had watched over her mother in childbirth. And so if you were a pregnant woman in Ephesus in the first century, you would ask Artemis to look after you. Yeah? And you would go to the temple of Artemis and you would sacrifice offerings and you would give money, lots of money, to the temple so that the goddess Artemis would look after you. And Artemis, if, if you were in trouble in your childbearing and you were going to die because of your having a baby, sometimes that would be a terrible process for women in the ancient world. And really until very recently, it could be a terrifying thing to have a baby and it could have gone on for a long time. Do you know what Artemis would do if you were in trouble and you were, you know, you were going to die? What would she do? She'd kill you. A mercy killing. So Artemis was a powerful goddess. And she was lodged in the psyche of the men and women of Ephesus. And those men and women encountered Jesus and they became Christians. And they, they came into the church. Now that means that there were some pretty powerful women coming into this church in Ephesus. And guess what? That when they went into the, uh, into the temple of Artemis, sometimes they dressed as the goddess Artemis. And guess what they looked like? They had braided hair and jewelry and fine clothes. And we know this because this is a really interesting uh, historical kind of development. Because there's a novel that was written called Ephesiaca. And it was written by a man called Xenophon of Ephesus. And for a long time, the ancient historians thought that this novel was written in the 4th or 5th century uh, AD. And then recently it was redated, this novel. And they said, actually, it was 1st century. 
So now we suddenly had a text that was written at exactly the same time as our letter, 1 Timothy. And there's a man called Gary Hogue who did his PhD in Bristol, where I live. And he went through Ephesiaca with a fine tooth comb. And he found all the Greek words in Ephesiaca that occur in 1 Timothy. And every single word, nearly every single word that occurs in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, appear in the novel Ephesiaca in relation to the cult of Artemis. So when we read this and we think, oh, so maybe there was something happening here that we, didn't, we don't have access to unless someone tells us the history and maybe the history will suddenly make sense of this for us. So if you imagine, if you were a woman who'd been brought up in the cult of Artemis, you would be a pretty strong woman. And one of the things you find out when you read Ephesiaca is that when they prayed in public, these women, they were really loud. And they were pretty domineering. And it was also linked to another goddess called Isis. Who, and, and Isis, guess what, had usurped all the authority from her husband, Ra, for, to, to take power to herself. So they were pretty confident about their power over men. And one of the things that Paul says in this passage, which we lose in the English, is he says, I'm not permitting a woman to teach. And we say, it, it says have authority, doesn't it? Well, Paul actually uses a word which in Greek is alphantine. That doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. So we don't actually have any other references to tell us what that means. The word for authority that Paul uses everywhere else is exousia. So that's his normal word for authority. When they did word studies on this, they realized that actually it can mean two other things. It often means to domineer or to dominate. I d I'm not permitting a woman to teach or to dominate a man. The other thing that it can mean is to teach that she is the originator of men. In the Isis myth, the woman was the originator of the whole of the human race. In the Christian creation story, Adam comes first. If these women were used to being powerful and in positions of power and teaching, and they came into the church and they were importing distorted stories and blending them with Christianity, they were a right royal pain in the neck. And Paul's writing to Timothy and saying, there's some things you're going to have to get on top of. And one of them is these women teachers who've come in from the, Isis, from the Artemis cult. And they're going to have to learn it to be quiet and to learn about the faith before they're elevated to positions where they can teach. Does that make sense? 
So for now, I'm not permitting them to teach or domineer the men or teach that they're the originators because they're wrong. So let them learn. They've got to, give, they've got to take off their clothes that they were wearing in the pagan temple. And they've got to be clothed with good works because all their money is not going to be good enough. They've got to give God goodness, holiness, righteousness. They can't buy their way in. The thing that I think characterizes the kind of women that Paul is dealing with, or maybe one woman, we're not quite sure. There may have been a kind of ringleader here. Where's my black one? is that they were entitled. They came into the church and they were entitled. And Paul's getting on top of it. I find it really interesting and good that there's a passage in the Bible that describes Paul getting on top a bunch of Bolshy women. <laughs> because we all know that there are times when women can be stroppy and domineering, don't we? Of course we know that. Women aren't always the victims, but sometimes they are. And we need to know the difference. We need to be smart and spirit-filled and wise Bible readers. And we need to know the difference of when Paul is dealing with a specific situation and when God is speaking to us all. And this is a very specific situation. And if you read the text through the lens of a very specific situation, suddenly it makes sense. Because these women who were coming out of the cult and they were behaving badly and they were locked in, it's called syncretism. When you convert from one faith to another and you, then you make a blend of the two. You syncretize them, you bring them together. And you get weird versions of Christianity. It happens all the time. Everyone who's been on the mission field knows it happens. And Paul's addressing it. And so tell them, tell those women that God will protect them through their childbearing. They don't need to go back to Artemis to look after them. They'll be protected by Jesus. They'll be saved through it, providing they continue in faith in him, in love and holiness with modesty. Makes sense. So you can, uh, I wrote a book trying to go to, to deal with Lots of different issues. Because what I realized is that people go, you, you, you bring them one piece, <laughs> and they say, oh, but what about? And then you bring them another bit, and they go, oh, but what about? And, you, and so I thought, well, why don't we just do it all? Why don't we just try and do it all to say, this book, this Bible, like Alan said, is a book about freedom. It's a, it's a book about how the Lord God himself has come to us and set us all free 
to serve him in any capacity, in any ministry, anywhere we want, he wants us in the church. It's nothing to do whether we're, we're men, women, our age, our background. We have no qualifications anyway. We know that. God just chooses us. And that's the privilege that we live with. I hope that soon there will come a time when the church is just released from this wholesale. Really? I pray for that. And I'm so sorry for any women who have come under any oppression in any way. And I know that, uh, that, that nobody here wanted that for you if it was somewhere else. And I'm so glad you're here. Praise God. So let's pray. Why don't you stand and just stand in God's presence. You know, this is a, a, a message for men as well. Men are so often under the weight of a misplaced responsibility, a, a, a misplaced sense that it all rests on them, and it just doesn't. God's given us each other to share the load equally, and then we all share it with him. <laughs> So, Lord Jesus, we just pray that you'd let your spirit rest on us and loosen all the, the weights that have rested on us, that have come upon us, maybe from people uh, that we've forgotten about, maybe from things we heard a long time ago, maybe from something we read. And thank you that your heart is just to bring freedom. Thank you that there are people here called to do things in the church. And you've known for a while that, that God's calling you to do it. And now you just feel a sense of peace. That yes. Yes, you can. Thank you, God, that you raised up women as apostles and preachers and teachers and leaders and co-workers and partners with you to bring in the kingdom. Thank you that anything's possible with you. And so we pray for an outpouring of your spirit, Lord. Just an anointing, kind of willy-nilly on all of us. <laughs> and more power to do what you're calling us to do. And just break any chains, any chains of inadequacy over any of us, men and women. We don't want them, Lord. It's not good for us. And just restore that sense of fun, of working with you, of seeing you at work, 
of rejoicing in our brothers and sisters who do things way better than us. Isn't that great? It's the fullness of your presence, Lord. Let it come. Thank you, Jesus. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.